When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. In 1856, the East India Company imposed the Hindu Widow Remarriage Act, allowing widows to remarry after their husband's death. The act was controversial at the time, Hindu traditionalists, particularly in higher castes, prevented widows from remarrying to protect the family's honor, and even teenage and child widows were expected to live lives of austerity. The following year, the Marathi author Baba Padmanji publishes Yamuna's Journey, one of the first, if not the first, novel in an Indian language. The novel, recently translated by Deepra Dandekar, follows the story of Yamuna, an educated Marathi woman and secret Christian, and her husband Vinayak as they travel the region, encountering tragic tales of Hindu widows prevented from remarrying. Deepra Dandegar is a researcher at the Leibniz Zentrum Moderner Orient in Berlin. She is the author of Baba Padmanji, Vernacular Christianity in Colonial India, the first critical biography of Baba Padmanji in English. We're joined today by Mariam Hader. Mariam, would you like to say a few words about yourself? Thanks, Nicholas. Hey, everyone. I'm Mariam Hader, an independent writer, researcher, and podcast producer based in Singapore. Today, the three of us will talk about Yamuna's journey, its Christian roots, and the debate about widow remarriage in 19th century India. So, deeper, I mean, to, to, to start with that, um, Yamuna's journey has such a strong social message. It's, it's, it's pretty clear what the author's point of view is. Um, and it refers to tensions between, say, British ideas and Indian ideas um, about widow remarriage or just about like ethics and traditions in general. Could you maybe to start, give us a brief snapshot of what India is like when this novel is being written? Uh, thanks for the question. I, I think this is an important part of the novel because this was the period which was about 20 or 30 years after um, the Peshwas were defeated by the British, after the Anglo-Maratha War. And this was a big deal for the fact that the Brahmin Peshwas had put together a sort of caste-based court. I mean, it's not a, uh, it's, it was not a coincidence that uh, most people who held powerful positions in the Peshwa court were Chitpavan Brahmins. And um, this was a time where there was, with, with this defeat came a huge amount of resentment. And this resentment was in the Bombay area, of course, Brahmanical. So in terms of a backdrop, one already sees a huge merge uh, between Brahminism and nationalism uh, in the Bombay presidency. And that was directly predicated on the fact that it was the Maratha Empire and the Peshwas who were defeated in the battle. So uh, in terms of a brief snapshot, this Brahmanical nationalist resentment was actually the context in which Padmanji first gained his education in a missionary organization. And then predictably, his enemies and his opposers remained 
uh, the supporters of the Peshwai, the Brahminical variety of nationalists, nascent nationalists, who were then in the presidency. I think that's very interesting that you talk about the sort of the Anglo-Maratha war and then you take us into this book. Um, because when I was reading, one of the first things that came to my mind was also the idea of how there were other reformist movements happening within not the same in not the same place but in different parts of what was then British India. Um, and I want to kind of you know ask from you what were the influences that Baba, Baba Padmanji would have had of those you know movements of sorts and also the own feminist sort of understanding because the book is very feminist especially written at a time when it was written in the first place. Mm. Uh, I think Admanji, so uh, I think reform as an idea in the Bombay presidency was uh, in that time uh, very deeply connected to missionary education. And many people who held reformist views, uh, especially um, in groups such as the Paramhans Mandali that was started in Bombay, in 1850 or 1851, 1850 or 51, um, these were all students of the Wilson School, of the Robert Money School, of uh, the kind of first large British educational institutions that took root after the Second Charter Act. So uh, these ideas about reform and ideas of conversion went hand in hand at that time. One could not separate ideas about Vidori marriage or Sati or so many of these so-called social evils from missionary education, early missionary education at that time. So they went, they were quite together. The Paramhans Mandali uh, um, was, uh, of course, it was a reform organization very strongly. Um, and they were against caste strictures and so on. And one of the initiation rituals of entering the mind really was that one had to buy bread from a Portuguese bakery and share it amongst everybody and eat the bread. Now, the taboo about something like that, the caste taboos of, about something like that was tremendously high. And uh, Padmanji writes a lot about how he felt when he ate that bread with the others for the first time. He felt as if everybody on the road outside when he was walking there knew that he had broken his caste. And he felt very exposed and it shattered him in a way at least temporarily speaking, before he converted. So um, reform is not uh, something... Now, um, the the Paramahans Mandali broke up soon thereafter. I mean, it, it was not a very uh, long-standing organization. Um, as the parents of the uh, younger boys who had started it got to know that they were breaking caste there, and they uh, sort of got them to shut it all down. But the members of the Paramans Mandali regrouped as the Prathana Samaj later on in Bombay in the 1860s, end of the 1860s. They were the same people, Atmaram, Pandurang, all these people were the same. The whole... I think it was missionary education that was the influence over both Christian reform as well as Hindu reform, right? As well as feminism or ideas that were in Yamuna Pariyatan. Uh, they were informed and rooted within missionary education. They were rooted within the early ideas also that came from Bengal, from the Scottish mission. But he was part of the Scottish mission, no Bombay Scottish. And the earlier ideas that came from the Calcutta Scottish, Alexander Duff, 
Then you had Krishna Mohan Banerjee. You had so many of these people who were talking about Kulinism, problems with women's education, and so. Padmanji was very much influenced by the kind of convert reform politics that was taking place at that time that was very enmeshed with Hindu reform. So the other thing that is part of his um, feminist ideas, or feminism actually didn't enter the lexicon till um, 1880s or something, and uh, his ideas, which were, of course, in the 1850s, beginning of 1850s or so, were more rooted in his own uh, his own uh, experiences of marriage. So his wife divorced him. Uh, in 1857 itself, he lost the habeas corpus. Um, as his wife declared in court that she did not want to return to him because he had converted to Christianity. And a lot of his ideas were uh, therefore rooted in the desire that he had for a companionship with uh, the ideal woman, the ideal modern woman who was a proto-convert, who held in her heart that she, she had given her heart to Jesus and would convert eventually at a certain point of time in her life. And that was something that was already very clear. Since we are talking of what you just mentioned in terms of, you know, Padmanji's, um, you know, his relationship with his first wife, do you think, um, you know, Vinayak and Yamuna's marriage was like an aspirational marriage that he wanted to bring into the literature? Well, totally. I don't think there were any marriages like that at the time, I think. Um, I can't imagine. And um, this was a very intimate kind of, uh, some of the intimacy, of course, sounds more normal, normal in English, because you are more used to uh, talking in the language of love when you talk about married couples, or partners or whatever. But um, it already sounds awkward um, in Badati, but it's, um, he really wanted something like that. He really wanted to have um, a wife with whom he could share a relationship like the one that Vinayak and Yamuna had, I think. Yeah. So maybe you can share with us a bit of the story for our listeners as well to understand, you know, how Yamuna and Vinayak's story sort of takes us on a journey itself of understanding um, the tensions that were prevalent then, especially when it came to widow marriages and just gives us a better understanding of the follow-up questions as well. Yeah. So, um, for example, um, okay, not for example, but I think one of the main things that Padmanji asserted uh, at the time was that Yamuna Pariyatan was based on true, true events. And these true events uh, were either anecdotes that he had collected by himself traveling to various areas, which, of course, in the story was done by Yamuna and Vinayak. So it's actually fictionalized. And all these sort of uh, anecdotes that Padmanji collected personally or through letters that were sent to him by his associates who were going into society and doing fieldwork and finding out information and so on. So instead of actually stating this as information, what he did was that he wove all these anecdotes within the storyline. The storyline is pretty simple. Yamuna and Vinayak are married, and Yamuna and Vinayak are both uh, educated within missionary uh, institutions, 
and uh, they both have the secret um, uh, feeling for uh, Christianity and Yamuna more so than Vinayak. And uh, so they travel due to Yamuna, uh, due to Vinayak's uh, business uh, meetings and business deals um, throughout Maharashtra, which is of course the whole double meaning of the word Yamuna Pariyatan. Pariyatan meaning uh, travel and tourism and uh, not tourism in those days, but yeah, travel or making a round of these areas. And um, of course, this also is the kind of takeoff on the Taiki itself because Yamuna Pariyatan is also the widow's pilgrimage, right? So um, he uses it in this uh, double way. And um, so they go off to various cities and they meet fictional characters who tell them all the information about the states that widows are living in, the state that, uh, the way in which widows are tortured. These are anecdotes which, which are built into conversations that they meet, that they have with fictional characters when they meet them in the story. So basically, Yamuna and Vinayak go from place to place meeting widows and uh, the stories are then contained therein uh, as recounted to them by those widows. And then they meet one specific widow. The whole focus of the story is that the specific widow whom they meet in um, a pilgrimage town. Pandharpur is a very important pilgrimage town for Vitoba and the, um, the Lord Vitoba. And uh, there uh, he uh, encounters a widow and he just, they rescue her because she's, of course, um, because she has no support system, she's, of course, working as a prostitute and... Uh, her son, uh, Shivaram, is also growing up uh, like an orphan because uh, he has no education, he has no care, and so on. So um, it's, of course, the whole conversation is extremely moralistic. But there is a voice to that widow and the way in which she's undergoing suffering, how she was kidnapped and how she was forced into um, sex work and so on. Um and then she's rescued, and uh, on their way back, Vinayak has a um, huge uh, political discussion uh, with his uh, earlier classmate, um, and uh, in which most of the discussions that were prevalent at the time within a certain section of upper caste um, educated men um, were articulated. And were articulated in a way, given giving Padmanji credit, who could write, of course, very harshly when he wanted to. Um, he has represented them uh, fairly, by without sounding very derisive or very sarcastic about. He did all those. Other, he he did this thing very. He did this very often. The sarcasm, the. It was horrible in some of the ways he talked about his enemies or his detractors. But he didn't do so in this, do it in this way in the novel, and he's represented them. And then, of course, he dies. And uh, before he dies, he, of course, secretly converts to Christianity. And, uh, I mean, on his deathbed. And so, Padmanji, I guess, thinks that Vinayak's soul uh, has been redeemed. And then Yamuna is uh, ill-treated by her mother-in-law and uh, almost forced into going through all the sort of tonsure rituals 
that Padmanji presents as a subversive kind of continuation of the Sati ritual. And um, because she has to be uh, taken to the cremation ground and her hair has to be uh, shorn off and has to be uh, cremated along with the ritualized effigy of the husband's body. And that ritual that takes place in the cremation ground through which she also does her own death rituals, he presents it in a way, although he doesn't say it explicitly, he presents it in the way that to show that uh, the sati ritual continued in this subversive kind of form, after which the widow was therefore automatically somebody who was not only a social persona anymore, but she was also somebody who had to live almost like a corpse herself, starving herself, uh, um, living in the most uh, austere of conditions, uh, had to labor in the household, was was often at uh, um, the receiving end of uh, physical and sexual violence. She was a non-person. So this he, he brought this up very evocatively that a widow live, did not live. She had to live in a way that was a death-like experience for her because the widowhood ritual was already a ritual that killed her through the ritual. The ritual was real huh? for people they believed in it. So it, it killed her. So in that sense, um, I have read through Yamuna Pariyatan many times and I... And still undecided, of course, there is the moral outrage about prostitution that he had. Uh, but at the same time, I do see that he was able to speak about these women in a way that showed that them, they were trying to live. They were trying to live a life where they could earn. They could feed their dependents like children or they could survive somehow. So I'm mixed about that. And I guess Padmanji was himself a bit mixed about that. I'm not sure what he himself thought. So coming to one of the questions that uh, is um, about what is this kind of uh, in-betweenness, right? And this in-betweenness to writing of real-time anecdotes that has that have been collected from the field and trying to make them empathetic experienced and understood um, a sort of fictional, a very basic kind of fictional narrative was uh, evolved around these anecdotes and uh, and I think that um, this this was this was a way he wanted to reach out about the various critical points like his criticism of pilgrimage places and the hell holes that there were and the points like the areas of corruption that they constituted and so he got a lot of his points through but instead of saying them articulating them as political points he made it he exemplified it through and I think this is also part this kind of exemplification is also part of the kind of genre um, so I've elsewhere called it um, the Christian vernacular genre and I think that um I had no other way but to talk of it in terms of a genre because I was unable to think of how one could articulate something that mixed the different kinds of existent um, sort of 
I'm not sure whether they even exist in genres, but uh, the different kind of known uh, Sucharitra, you know, biography or uh, didactics, Upadesha and um, or Sanmans. And all this has been merged, this didacticism plus biography plus um, Christian homilies, uh, parable-like examples from daily life. Um, and song and poems and devotionality and all this has been merged together to kind of form this message uh, which is in between genres. It's in between, uh, it's a parable kind of writing. So it merges the so many different kinds of ways of communicating. Uh, thank you for actually, uh, you know, just illuminating us on, on that note because something this is something which you otherwise don't come across. We always read reformist movements, especially in the Indian school and edu educational system, uh, where we have very few names and we just kind of see everything through their lens. Um, I have one final question for you, since we are talking about uh, Padmanji's women characters. There is one particular character of a widow that I was very inclined to know, kind of understand from her story more about. Um, she is someone who is who's asking for arms and then the cook offers to give her a piece of wood but she refuses to take it from him because he's of an, he's not of the, he's one of the oppressed castes right and then she the widow explains how she is not in favor of widow remarriage how she uh, is not comfortable with the idea of of this entire reformist movement that was happening can you please explain more on that because i was really intrigued by that character yeah i'm thinking I think Padmanji also demonstrated, I mean, Padmanji also wrote about the Brahmin widow, chapter 10, in a certain way, no? See, the whole missionary idea about, it's also a general political idea in the post-colonial period, that political lobbying is connected around interests, you know? So the whole idea that uh, Ambedkar, interest, you know, for our own caste, women, interest for our own group, that women's emancipation. This whole idea of this is going to benefit us. And so we need to be politically invested and motivated in uh, the movement. Padmanji's ideas of conversion were avant-garde exactly because they were similar. This is something that literary critic um, Bhalchandra Nimadev also pointed out. This is one of the earliest examples of this kind of political activism of what's going to be good for your soul, what's going to be good for your life. If that's going to be good for you, then you should imbibe it, right? Now, these are early ideas about politics of interest and not politics of, uh, let's say, abstract values. These are very much to do with the lives of people who are being downtrodden, whether they be of a different caste or background or, or women and so on. And Padmanji is self-reflexive enough, though he shows her as somebody who's a kind of a paradoxical figure. But that's his representation of her. This is also about the fact that he was talking for the first time about the politics of conversion, the politics of interest, that if you are being ill-treated by all the men of your family, then why don't you just chuck it over and marry someone else and in brackets convert to Christianity. It is something that uh, will enable you. It's something that's in your interest. I think this was very early for the first kind of conversations about the politics of interest that we see emerging in Maharashtra, at least only with Jyotiba Kule later on in a more concentrated kind of way. Otherwise, you do not hear of the politics of interest. There was no social movement that made this about 
us and our interest and so we should take this over. And I think this is part, this early conversation, this early fledgling efforts at trying to say that this is good for us. And I think this runs through the entire relationship of uh, Vinayak and Yamuna as well because there are chapters that talk about the picnics they are having and they are going to some rural homestead and doing, they, they love to play and such beautiful descriptions and oh, we are having such uh, wonderful food and so on and so forth and we are having a little party, we are going in our little bullock cart and we are looking at sunrises and we are having, so he's already talking about interest and not just spiritual interest but conjugal interests, material interests, interests about becoming socially more powerful, socially more emancipated. He's talking about, though he couches it in the language of spirituality and meeting God and so on and so forth, but it's not just that. It's not as innocent as that. So this is also the politics of how there are people who are not interested in this kind of material change. They are more interested in having um, a caste-based society that was part of the Peshwai period. So the same widow, right? She is saying, yeah, there's so much of, um, there's so much of um, uh, licentiousness uh, uh, in society and all these widows are so licentious and they're so bad and uh, it's because of them that we get a bad name and uh, so on and so forth. And she says, yeah, but if this was the Peshwai, uh, they would have uh, punished these women and uh, they should still have had sati so that then all these women who are now doing these um, licentious activities would have gone to meet their husbands in death. And it's because of, she calls them the kumpini, you know, the company, I think. She says that the kumpini is ruled by a woman in England and that is why this is all has happened. So there is, uh, you do see that Padmanji recognizes the presence of women who did support the same Brahminical patriarchy that men were supporting. And this was not completely through um, just the politics of interest, but it was also through the politics of certain values, abstract values, of, to do with purity and to do with um, chasteness and to do with all those ideas. I think the sort of politics of interest that came in. We are already talking about colonialism. We are already talking about nationalism, the interests of groups, reforms, and so on. It came a little bit later. I think it's a fascinating conversation. Yeah, so I, I, I want to, I think, kind of end our end our conversation by going um, maybe a big picture again. Um, you know, what do you think the, the place... Uh, or, or, or what place does this book, does Yamuna's journey um, hold when we talk about the history of Indian literature? Kind of where, if you had to kind of like con construct a, a story of the development of Indian literature, where does Yamuna's journey fit in that story? Mm. I'm not certain whether I'm very knowledgeable about Indian literature in general because there's just so much there, which of course, which I haven't uh, read as uh, I, I, I haven't been able to read all that, but I can say a little bit um, about the whole way of writing realistically. So um, um, we have a literary historian and critic, now Balchandra Nemade, who uh, has talked about Yamuna Pariyatan as one of the um, earliest examples of realistic novels. You know, earlier the idea of a novel was poetic. 
not completely kavya or poetics uh, completely, but very much within a kind of fictional, fictionalized writing style that mixed uh, miracles and mixed uh, celestial beings and um, into the normal course of events and um, a very Puranic kind of writing style with stories. And for the first time, uh, you had Padmanji coming in with uh, something that was realistic, which was about the society that we lived in, its material problems, its social problems, the problems of women, and uh, especially dealing for the first time with the sexuality and those uh, frustrations of widows who were just completely alone in their lives. And um, I think so, it has been, so Yamuna Pariyatan today happily is uh, one of the novels that is uh, taught in the master's courses of Marathi literature in, in Maharashtra. So it is one of those earliest examples of social literature, which in the post-colonial period, of course, took on in a major way. You had people writing about different kinds of social problems, caste and this and that. So people talk about personal experiences, and this was not there at the time that Padmanji was writing. So I think one of the main contributions is the fact it's so early, it's so bold, it's so hard-hitting, it's based on realism. He said again and again, they're all real animals. I've collected them. I've just woven it within the story. Mm -hmm. So I think that was one of the big contributions. Uh, the second, um, um, sorry, am I interrupting you? No, 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 please. What, 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 what was the second big contribution? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, the second thing is, uh, I feel that Marathi literature, vernacular literature, is still in the stages of discovery. So, um, as far as translations and so on are considered concerned, I mean, Yamuna Pariyatan had to wait till uh, 2022, right, before it came out into the market. Similarly. There was a, a novel uh, called Smriti Chitre, a very influential memoir. Uh, it was written by a lady again called Lakshmi Bai in the 1930s. She was the wife of a very illustrious Brahmin Christian missionary called Narayan Vaman Tilak. Um, and it had to wait till 2017 to be first translated into English by Shanta Gokhale. So uh, there has been, there is still the process of, of rediscovery and translation and this is still continuing and it's still pretty new. And I think the bias is really high against Christian literature because it has a clearly missionizing nature because it was written in a certain period of time where missionizing was an important goal. So it has a missionizing nature and this is something that is politically problematic today because missionizing texts are deemed to be dangerous. So, um, so the discovery and the translation of Hindu reform texts have been comparatively speedier. You have far much more of uh, exposure to Jyoti Bapule's Tritya uh, Ratna and uh, the other things that uh, social reformers wrote at that time um, in comparison to Christian literature, which uh, was about converts and convert biographies and um, to talk about the kind of social background and political context of uh, conversion. So um, I think Christian literature, vernacular literature, is still at the cusp um, of it all. 
and uh, especially Protestant literature, which is prose and which is uh, very political in nature, very interest-oriented in nature. So this is still being actually just being done uh, in comparison to works such as uh, Pule or all other freedom fighters of the time, later time, Agarkar, Gokhale, Radhane, Tilak, Savarkar, all these people who were on the later stage of events, uh, they've been written about far more. They've been written about this sort of, this much more on that. So I think this early literature where Marathi vernaculars really took off through missionary education. Um, and there was this whole Macaulay's Minute and... Uh, and there were these educational reforms and Arabic, Persian, Sanskrit, these were all removed from the curriculum. And you had the emergence of the vernacular as the modern way of talking about life and religion and culture and conversion and print and so on. I think this immediate phase is not, it's not somehow um, received too much of importance. And I think there's a lot of space there to develop further. Well, thank you for listening to our interview with Deepra Dandekar, translator of Yamana's Journey. Deepra, we actually have two final questions for you, which are, uh, where can people find your work? And what's next for you? What might the next project be? Hmm. So the book has been published, um, Yamuna Palliatum has been published by Speaking Tiger. And uh, um, the book on Padmanji that I wrote two years back, that is, of course, uh, also made public through uh, the India paper packs version of Rutledge. So you have the UK version as well as the Indian paper pack version of the same text. Um, in terms of future, um, something that I'm working on finishing right now is a monograph on Sufi shrines in uh, rural Maharashtra. So, though there is a lot that is known on the shrines, hankas, dargas of uh, people who were connected with the court, who were connected with the Deccan Sultanate court, and then with the Mughals in Aurangabad and so on, there is quite a lot available in terms of sources on that. Now, what is not available, of course, is what happened to the thousands and thousands of rural dargas. Every village in Maharashtra has one or two shrines. And who were they? we have no understanding of them. So what I have done is in the last 10 years, I've collected a lot of uh, community publications like Darga in the uh, sort of committees bring out small little booklets that are about prayer, a little bit about the saints' hagiography, it is available, or the saints' miracles, the karamats that are there. So I have been collecting that now. It's like a community archives. I've been collecting that unending material now for a while. I've decided to now throw in the gauntlet and start writing. And um, I've combined these with oral narratives and uh, interviews that I have um, had now, recorded now for many years with people who have wanted to talk to me about their experiences with the shrine, what they understand the shrine. And this, this is, of course, integrated completely with their own life stories of were receiving healing at the shrine. So I'm talking, I'm theorizing a little bit about what the Marathi shrine is and uh, what the forgotten saint, the rural forgotten saint is, um, especially contextualized in post-colonial period where you had a demographical depletion of Muslims from the rural countryside wow. um, that went more towards big cities or then to work with the girls. 
outside or in any other country outside. So the the whole formation of Maharashtra in 1960, the post-colonial sort of Hindu majoritarian uh, sort of context and what that did to these thousands and thousands of rural dargahs where um, I haven't been to thousands, but I have been to as many which which I could in order to get together a source, a sort of a decent source base to be able to theorize what happened to them, what happens, what has happened to them. Or, I mean, contrary to what one thinks, they haven't been discarded or demolished. And contrary to what one may think, um, it isn't as if there is so much segregation that the Hindu devotee does not love the saint. There's enormous love for the saint. And, um, and how this kind of uh, absorption into Hindu devotionality at a very local, rural base has transformed these dargahs into witchcraft healing functions and so on and so forth. Not really into any kind of ideas of Hinduism as such. I mean, standardized Hindu texts or whatever. Not, not that. So it's still ongoing. I'm still trying to get all my chapters together. Well, hopefully, hopefully we get to hear more about it. Um, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. Mariam, where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram at M-A-R-I-Y-A-M-H-A-I-D-E-R-1-9. Mariam had the 19. The URB Podcast is one of your podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned for more news and who's coming up on the show. But before then, Deepra, thank you so much for joining us today. 